This is The Guardian. Today, the babies and surrogate mothers trapped by war in Ukraine and the parents trying to get them out. Just a quick warning before we start. This episode does contain some scenes that some listeners will find distressing. (laughs) It's an image I can't shake from my mind. Rows of tiny, helpless babies in a bunker, stuck in the middle of a war zone. Born to surrogate mothers, these infants have been left in limbo, as the parents who've dreamed of holding them can only watch in horror as Russian bombs rain down on Ukraine. Every year, around 2,000 children are born via surrogacy in Ukraine to couples from all over the world. Many, like Annabelle, who have waited years to become parents. Nobody goes to Ukraine for surrogacy that hasn't been through a journey of, of heartbreak, loss and grief. You know, it's those things that take you to the Ukraine. And the war has compounded that heartbreak, grief and loss to a whole new level, I think. But as the writer Shirin Kale has been finding out, The war has complicated a practice that was already controversial. This is an industry, and it is an industry that involves women's bodies. And to critics of commercial surrogacy, the situation in Ukraine is seen as the worst example of the excesses of this industry. And as the assault on Ukraine stretches into its second month, the race to get these babies and their surrogate mothers to safety is on. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, the trapped Ukrainian surrogates and the parents struggling to bring home their babies. Shirin Kale, you've written about the surrogacy industry in Ukraine, which, as I understand it, has undergone one of the world's biggest surrogacy booms with thousands of couples traveling there every year to try and find a match and to have babies. And of course, Now those couples and the women who are helping them are looking at a very changed situation because of the war. How did you first come to this story? So I first came to this story actually through seeing a number of news articles which really centred the experiences of foreign couples and their efforts to extract their children who had been born through surrogacy from the Ukraine. And there was often actually no mention made at all of the surrogate mothers who were, you know, presumably left postpartum in a war zone. And so that was really interesting to me, you know, knowing what might become of those women who were left behind in a war zone. And secondarily, I was also quite interested by the fact that surrogacy is so big in the Ukraine. It's really an industry that I didn't know much about. So I was interested to look into it a bit further. Just how big is the surrogacy industry in Ukraine? Estimates vary, but it's believed that between 2,000 and 2,500 children are born a year through surrogacy in Ukraine. And of that, around 40 are believed to come from UK families. So, you know, it's it's a fairly significant industry and people are travelling to Ukraine from all over the world to collect children that have been born via surrogates. And you've interviewed couples going through this process. 
What kind of stories were you told? Why did they choose Ukraine? Ukraine actually has pretty strict laws on which couples can use Ukrainian surrogates. So it's definitely not the case that anybody can have a child through surrogacy. Firstly, these couples need to be heterosexual. Secondly, they need to be married. And thirdly, they have to have a medical reason why they aren't able to have a biological child themselves. And what that means in practice is that these are couples who have often been on very long and painful and costly journeys. Often they've had multiple miscarriages or stillbirths, and they've often spent tens of thousands of pounds attempting to have children through IVF and they've reached the end of that road and they've decided to explore surrogacy. So it's it's really a journey that has been fought with a lot of heartache for these couples. And I think it's important to say that nobody chooses to have a baby through surrogacy lightly. It's a really big emotional and financial commitment. And all of the couples using Ukrainian surrogates will have thought very carefully about that decision. If the rules are so stringent in Ukraine, how did it become such a centre for surrogacy and how do those laws compare to the situation in the UK? So in the UK, we don't have commercial surrogacy. It's not legal to pay somebody to have a child for you. So anyone using surrogacy in the UK, it has to be done for altruistic reasons, which means that no money can be exchanged. So one of the reasons that Ukraine is so attractive to couples wishing to pursue surrogacy is that the laws recognise intended parents as the legal parents of those children from birth. So whereas in other jurisdictions, the surrogate mother will be recognised as that child's birth mother on birth certificates and in legal documentation, when you have a child through a surrogate in Ukraine, you, the individual using the surrogate, are recognised as that child's parent from the moment that child is born. And that makes things a lot easier in terms of getting all your paperwork in order, in terms of being recognised as the legal parent, and in terms of being able to bring that child home to your own country. What's the process that people typically go through on this journey to Ukraine? In all circumstances, people go through agencies. And these there are a number of commercial surrogacy agencies in Ukraine. Many of them are based in the capital, Kiev, but also all over the country. And some of these agencies, I should say, are really big, you know, and really established. There are also more boutique style agencies, which might have, you know, 10, 15, 20 surrogates maximum on their books. And what normally happens when anyone is considering any sort of transaction, which is that they do a lot of online research and parents will try and find a surrogacy agency that they believe matches their values, that they believe will be the best for them in this journey. So these agencies are matching surrogate mothers with foreign couples. And it's also really important to note at this point that under Ukrainian law, you are not able to become a surrogate mother unless you have had one of your own biological children yourself. So all of the women going through this process will already have at least one child of their own. Shirin, as you said earlier, surrogacy isn't without controversy. I mean, the very idea of paying a stranger to carry and give birth to a child is pretty alien to most people, let alone in the middle of a war. And for that process to then happen abroad according to different countries' laws, it can also be concerning because it can potentially lead the surrogates vulnerable to economic exploitation or to being abused either by the agencies or by the prospective parents themselves. What sorts of issues have you encountered in your reporting? 
From speaking with people who work in these agencies and former surrogates, I know that it's not black and white. But what we certainly do know is that women can be extremely vulnerable to abuse. And I've spoken to human rights organisations who tell me that they run helplines and they get around 100 calls a year from distressed surrogates. Often these surrogates have been pressured to sign contracts that are exploitative, that place limits on their freedom of movement, where they can go, where they must live. And in some cases, these contracts that these surrogate mothers are being forced to sign by their agencies are actually unethical. And how much do couples and As you said, it is always couples because you can't be single to do this in Ukraine. How much do those couples pay on average? And how much of that goes to the woman acting as surrogate? I don't have reliable figures on this, but what we've seen is that surrogacy in Ukraine typically costs for the parents between 40 and 65,000 pounds. Not all of that money is going to be going to the surrogate mothers. The agencies will be taking a cut, of course, as will hospitals. So what we see is that the surrogate mothers are being paid Again, estimates vary, but you're looking at between 10 and 15,000 pounds in a one-off down payment for that pregnancy and then a stipend as well, which is normally a few hundred pounds a month. And that's intended to cover their living expenses and other associated costs. One British woman who is hoping to become a parent with the help of a surrogate in Ukraine, shared her story with me. She's in her 40s and lives with her husband in the south of England. We're calling her Annabelle. Annabelle, when did you and your husband first decide you wanted to have a child? I would say probably about 10 years ago. Um, Obviously, I've always wanted a child, but when I met my husband... I decided that this was the person that I really wanted a child with. And how has that last decade gone for you both? Um, <laughs> it's been a pretty uh, difficult journey. We started trying naturally and we did get pregnant on the very first month. But sadly, that miscarried. And I suppose that was the um, beginning of what turned into a 10-year fertility trauma. After a considerable amount of trying naturally, it became clear that wasn't going to work, so we turned to IVF. And obviously IVF is a kind of gruelling and difficult process. Um, you go through humiliating, painful procedures. You end up pumping drugs into your body. You have to inject yourself. Um, there's nothing pleasant about it. And then I suppose that takes you to all sorts of places. Um, we supplemented the IVF with lots of complementary therapies like acupuncture, hypnotherapy, I think I did cranial osteopathy, womb massage, reflex, yoga, tai chi. You change your diet. So it just literally takes over your whole life. What kept you both going? I mean, were there any points where you just thought this is this is too much? I'm very resilient. <laughs> well, yeah, sounds it. Oh, uh, yeah. I think I think that's it. I think I'm extremely resilient. And yeah, I think there's kind of some primal biological instinct, isn't it? An emotional pull to have a child and I know that's not for everybody but it was for us and I think that just keeps you going it pushes you through all of the adversities we had four rounds of IVF and four miscarriages obviously not all from IVF some naturally and I would say to myself right you know it's not worked out you have one day of crying and then you pick yourself up and you get on and 
it's like, okay, what's the next thing I have to try to make this work? And you're always looking for something else to try to make it work. Can I ask what you and your husband do? Because I imagine this, I mean, it's not just a gruelling process. It's a very expensive one. Yeah, it's an unbelievably expensive process. Um, And yeah, really kind of out of our remit, to be perfectly honest. So I work in education and he works in a factory. So all of our IVF journey and the surrogacy journey has been a struggle. Now, you've mentioned surrogacy. When and why did you decide to go down that route? So on our last round of IVF, um, we did finally become pregnant. And we got to the 20 weeks and we thought, yes, this is it. You know, our dreams are finally going to come true. And then at 23 weeks, I went into labour and delivered our daughter. And um, she died five weeks later. And, you know, no parent should have to go through that, burying their child. Um, It's a very difficult, heartbreaking thing to happen. And so maybe two weeks after she died, the obstetrician called us up. And he said to us that obviously during my labour, my husband had been given the decision about which one of us he would save um, if it came down to it because there were difficulties. Um, And so the doctor said, look, it would be ridiculous for you to try again because of what happened and the fact that you might not survive it. So he said to me, the only way you're going to come home alive and bring a baby home alive is to turn to surrogacy. I did point out to him that you can't exactly go down to Tesco's and pick one off the shelf. It's very difficult. Well, quite. So then what did you do? Uh, I joined lots of forums. And very quickly, it became clear that England wasn't going to be viable. You know, we'd already waited almost 10 years for this child. So, you know, we felt there was an urgency to it. So that is what took us to look for surrogacy abroad. I just kept putting out lots of questions, asking for information and more information. And I just researched and researched and researched and found a lawyer who was also going through the surrogacy process. And she said to me that she'd looked at the laws in all of the countries around the world that, um, where surrogacy was legal. And she and her husband had chosen the Ukraine. And she said this was because it had the best laws in the world in terms of protecting both you as what they call the intended parent and for protecting the surrogate mother. Right, so you chose Ukraine instead of one of the few other countries that allow commercial surrogacy, like the US, Canada and Georgia, because I guess it felt right for you. What were the next steps you and your husband took to find a surrogate? Um, I guess around September, I interviewed probably about five agencies that I'd narrowed it down to. And then the one I chose, I just really, I got a really good vibe from the woman that did the interview with me. So once you decided on which clinic you were going with, how soon after that did you get matched with your surrogate? We're very lucky we matched very quickly. And all that happens is your agency will send you through two sheets of A4 paper telling you about the candidate. And it literally has two photos and then 20 bullet points of very basic information, such as their name, age, height, employment, hobbies, pets and then also about their children. And from that, you have to decide whether you're willing to accept the match. So I looked at the photograph, and I don't know, it's really hard to explain. It was just kind of cataclysmic. I knew she was the right one for us. But at that same time, I did want to make sure that we were the right ones for her, and I wanted to ensure that she could see who we were. 
and that we would be people that she was comfortable handing over a baby to. So how does that work? Did you meet over Zoom or in person? So we met on Zoom, yeah, with a translator. And when she heard our story, she began to cry. And I thought, what compassion for a person you've never even met. And then she promised that she did everything she could to bring us the joy of parenthood that she'd experienced. Did she say why she wanted to do this? Why she wanted to carry a baby for you? You know, she's escaped a a very bad domestic abuse situation and she wanted to use that money to buy an apartment and um, to provide a better education and future for her son. Um, So for her, you know, it's life-changing. She part-purchased and she was hoping to um, finish paying off for the apartment, which, you know, I'm hoping and praying that will still exist in, you know, whenever this ends. And this, the war, of course, has just been devastating. A lot of us were stunned on February 24th when those Russian tanks began rolling into Ukraine. What was your first thought? Oh, I think for about a month prior to that, I've been becoming more and more nervous. Um, You know, I'm in these chat groups and obviously there was a, a slow kind of building up of concern. And I think I probably drove the agency crazy with a weekly panicking email, sort of asking questions about what would happen in the event of an attack. The day before that evening of attacks, they sent me an email saying, there's no talk of martial law here. Don't worry, it's business as usual. So that's what the agency told you. But it seems like you were still, rightly it turned out, it seems like you were still worried about the safety of your surrogate, who we're calling Olga to protect her identity. But... Did you manage to get in touch with her? Prior to this point, obviously all of our communication had been through the agency, but um, I had obviously just checked out to see if I could see her on Facebook. So as soon as the war started, I um, contacted her on Facebook, you know, just to say, I can't believe what's happened. I'm so sorry. How are you? Is there anything you, you you need us to do for you? But when I woke up on that second day, I already had had a message from her saying, um, I've spoken to the agency. They've given me permission to go to Poland because our area has been invaded. Um, I don't think it's safe for us here anymore. And did you make it to Poland okay? Yeah, so she initially stayed with friends. And then after a week, she had to leave there because their families came from Ukraine and there was no longer space. So we booked her into an apartment for a month. And that's just on the German border, Polish-German border. Shirin, how did the people working in Ukraine's surrogacy industry respond when the war broke out? The real issue is that they were not prepared. So I've spoken with a number of people in the surrogacy industry, both lawyers and agency workers, and pretty much all of them were confident that this would not happen. To Western observers, it seems inevitable that Putin was going to invade Ukraine. But to many people in Ukraine, that was not a certainty. And when the invasion actually happened, they were stunned and shocked. So as a result, there was really no contingency plans in place for the overwhelming majority of people in this industry, which meant that many were left scrambling to get across the border. Others chose to stay with their families. And in the chaos many surrogates lost touch with their intended parents. And there was just a real sense of overwhelming fear and panic because people were thinking, oh my goodness, where is my baby? Where is my surrogate mother? There were 
a few agencies, one agency boss I spoke to in particular who had slightly more foresight and she did move the overwhelming majority of her surrogates to Lviv, which is a city near the Polish border, which is relatively safe or was relatively safe at the time. That agency boss, she said to me, I had to force the surrogate mothers to go there. I had to sell it to them like it was a paid holiday because nobody thought that Putin was going to invade. Because those women did not think that anything was going to happen, they rejected her offer to bring their family members with them, which now means that they're actually separated from their husbands and they're separated from their children in some circumstances, which is obviously just hugely upsetting for them. Well, I'm sure a lot of people have seen those photos of newborn babies that surrogate mothers have given birth to and now being kept in air raid shelters. And there's hundreds of them. Why has it come to that? Well, because very few places are safe. You know, even Lviv, which was considered to be a safe refuge where hundreds of thousands of people are staying, is no longer safe. And we also need to remember that there have been attacks on maternity hospitals, one terrible attack in Mariupol. And so, you know, women are not being able to give birth to these babies in safe environments. And it's also important to remember that under Ukrainian law, Surrogate mothers are not the parents of these children. The women giving birth to these babies are not considered their parents, and they often don't see themselves as the parents of these children either. They have their own children to look after. They have their own families to worry about, and that's why in some circumstances these babies are being cared for by agency workers or hospital workers, not by the surrogate mothers. And there is precedent for this. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, a number of international parents weren't able to get into Ukraine to collect their children, obviously due to the travel restrictions around the pandemic. And in those circumstances, the children were kept in special wards and they were cared for by staff until the parents were able to go and collect those babies. However, it's a very different thing to be in a pandemic and have bombs raining down on your city. And it's really an impossible situation. Shirin, We've heard in previous episodes of this show from people who are struggling to get their family members from Ukraine safely into the UK. And imagine there's even bigger bureaucratic hurdles for people like Annabelle. What's the legal situation in the UK with visas and so on if they want to bring their surrogates here? Initially, there were no legal routes for UK families to bring their surrogates over to the UK without breaking the law. There was no resettlement scheme in place when the war began. However, subsequently, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, has announced that Ukrainian surrogates who are giving birth to babies for British couples will be eligible for three-year visas, which means that there is legal recourse for them to come to the UK. As we know, it's taken a very long time for the Home Office to process a number of these visas. And so I think parents would say the time really is of the urgency. These are women who are pregnant and do really need to be able to get over here and get proper medical attention and care before they have their babies. And people would really like for that process to be speeded up. After the break, we catch up with Annabelle as she arrives in Poland to meet her surrogate for the first time. Olga made it across the border into Poland, three months pregnant. And then Annabelle headed over to meet her. She's making plans for Olga and her son to move to the UK where they'll all live together. All right, so you are in Poland. I am. How's it gone? 
It's been amazing, actually. Yeah, it's been really good. So I got here Sunday night and met them and we ate together and um, I'd obviously bought lots of gifts with me. So we played with lots of the toys and just got to know each other. And yeah, it was a million times better than I kind of expected because I was quite nervous coming over, you know, because it's such a huge thing. Um, but luckily she speaks a little bit of English and um, I've downloaded a couple of apps um, between her English, the apps and mime. <laughs> getting we're, we're through it. Yeah, we're getting through. We're managing. So we got to the doctor. She speaks Russian. I speak English and the doctor spoke Polish. So again, <laughs> with a lot of um, translation apps, we kind of finally got through and we were able to have the scan. And uh, yeah, so that was incredible. Just being there for the scan and you couldn't even see like the full baby you could just see little bits like a head and arm and he was taking measurements and we were both I think getting quite nervous because he hadn't said anything and eventually we were like is it normal and he's like oh yes yes it's normal it's fine so we were both like phew oh and what's it been like actually meeting Olga in person and her son like was it slightly awkward were they shy or well she said that he was really shy so not to be offended if he didn't want to come near me Mm. but he's been the complete opposite I mean he's been climbing all over me hugging kissing um when I went out today because I was going to pop to the shop he wanted to come with me and then her mum and her brother have just arrived and, and her mum came with a beer she said oh you know I want to welcome you with a beer and so we're having a beer (laughs) We've been playing dominoes and playing with cars and colouring and all sorts of different things. What was your first conversation like with your husband and how did he feel? Four or five minutes after I got in the door, um, I FaceTimed him so he could say hello as well. And then um, after the scan yesterday, I obviously sent him a little clip of the video and some pictures. And uh, so, yeah, he was just relieved and thrilled and uh, he's excited to get to meet them too. And when will that be? What's the update on Olga's visa situation and what happens next? So I've got to get all the documents together. So I needed a scan of their passport. So as soon as I get home, I can submit all of those. And then hopefully, you know, it should be issued within days, I'm understanding. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's looking more and more promising. How are you going to prepare for that? How are you going to get... I guess you're home ready. I mean, are you, um, you're emotionally ready, it seems, but is there any other sort of logistical things that you need to sort of work out? No, I think um, we've got a spare room. I've worked in education, so I've got a lot of toys in the house anyway. And yeah, we'll just, we'll muddle along. We'll work it out. You know, they've always wanted to visit England, so I'm sure this isn't the way they're expecting to visit it, but hopefully we can make it into a wonderful opportunity for them whilst they're there. Amazing. Thank you so much, Annabelle. Wishing you so much luck. Thank you very much. We spoke to Natalie Gamble, a lawyer who has been helping Annabelle and her husband, along with 30 other couples, to get visas for their surrogates to come to the UK. She told us that emergency passports have been issued for five British babies born in Ukraine since the start of the war, and they are all now safely home with their parents. Two visas have also been granted for pregnant surrogates and their children, who are now in the UK. Thanks also to Shirin Kale for talking to us. You can read her piece, Will the Babies Be Left in a War Zone? The Terrified Ukrainian Surrogates and the Parents Waiting for Their Children at theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Hannah Moore. Sound design is by Axel Kakutier. 
The executive producers are Mike Lee Rao and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>